We'd like to thank our sponsor, SPEC, for making today's episode possible. Stop waiting months or years to deploy the fraud defense tools you need to secure your applications from fraud attacks. With the SPEC orchestration platform, you can integrate new tools into your existing fraud stack in minutes without writing a single line of code. You can quickly adapt to emerging adversarial AI threats and even policy abuse. And because SPEC captures all behavioral data, you can enrich the data your tools receive, improving their performance. When vendor performance, attack tactics, and user behavior changes, SPEC automatically monitors, alerts, and responds to those trends before they become issues. Visit www.specprotected.com today to learn more and schedule your very own demo. Now let's get to the episode. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Fraud Boxer. Uh, I have a guest today that some of you might may know, and some of you may have even seen me on a panel. I got Katie McCarthy here. She's from Classy GoFundMe. How are you doing today? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, we it's been about a month and a half since we were on a panel together. We had Sam from PlayStation there. That was a lot of fun uh, yep. down in San Diego. Weather was perfect. Place was good. So um, yeah, it's good to see you again. And thank you for for coming on my show so we can talk KPIs. Of course. Happy to continue the conversation. So always curious with my guests when they come on the show to find out kind of how they wound up here. Because, I mean, the fraud and payments is, is kind of a weird industry. Usually people don't go to school to to, to go into it. They just fall True. into it. Um, I'm always curious how people wound up in payments. Now, you kind of are on more of the uh, analytics side, so not so much in like payment operations and everything like that. But you give the payments people the data that they need and you find the data, you create the KPIs, you create the dashboards for those people. So how did you get into this industry? Let's talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I actually started in co-branded cards, uh, retail branded credit cards, which is a little bit niche, but I was working for um, a consulting firm at the time, and we were doing post M&A transaction integrations of co-branded cards. So thinking about all the data behind the card and cardholder information, the data cut over between the two issuing banks that are acquiring those retail branded credit cards, and then that customer experience that that retailer is trying to create for their most loyal customer base. So I did that for a couple of years. So that's like, um, I, I think most people would think of it like their airline credit cards, that type of thing, right? Like totally. uh, Delta cards, you know, United cards. Nordstrom um, card. Okay. Would they always be, would these cards always be related to a network or sometimes would they be like closed loop, kind of like how um, Victoria's Secret does theirs? Uh, the ones that I worked on were all network related. Yeah. So they're the issuer and the network and the processor to fire. Excellent. I know that a, a lot of like, especially the airlines with their cards, like they end up making more money on the co-branded cards than they do on like flying people around. Like that's crazy. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's so much margin on the co-branded cards and particularly the, the difficult part is getting cardholders to use their co-branded card on non uh, or retailers that are not branded on that card. Yeah. The client like a first and wallet card. So use it for other, other types of yeah. purchases. Um, then wallet, you have this yeah. access to transaction revenue that you would never have had access to otherwise. Interesting. So, okay. So for example, this is interesting. I know it's not on our notes, but let's talk about this yeah, for a minute. Let's do it. Um, I have the Delta American Express reserve card. So like their highest tier of the Delta card. Yeah. And 
obviously with that card, I get certain perks on the airline. Like I get the, the certain level of boarding. I get upgrades. I get lounge access, which they're totally screwing on. Yep, I heard in that. In a couple of years. They walked it back a little bit this last week, but it's not good enough. So I'm probably going to cancel. But one of the things that I do is I use that card for everything. If they mm -hmm. take American Express, period, I'm using it for everything because there are certain tiers that I get extra boosts. Um, so if I spend, every time I spend $30,000, I get 15,000 button seat miles, which I wouldn't have to like, normally I'd have to be literally button seat to get those miles, but they give me boosts on those. So I try to hit those tiers because I'm buying the stuff anyway. So exactly. I might as well. So they like it when I do that. Exactly. Yeah. Even if I they pay it change, off I every month. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They love that. Okay, good to know. So yeah, what were you going to say about it? Like, I think the interchange is higher. I think they get some type of kickback on the uh, transaction volume percentage itself. I can't remember exactly how it's monetized, but they get more money on those transactions than they do on you making purchases like for the airline itself. Yeah, when you look at like processing, like if you really break down like your statement from your processor, um, the different card types, like the premium level cards usually have a higher exactly. rate that they're charged at exactly. versus like debit cards or just regular platinum credit cards that everybody has. Exactly. And then they have a relationship with the network to get some of that money back. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Kickbacks all day long, man. Yeah. I got to, exactly. I got to make a co-branded card. Uh, <laughs> fr the fraud boxer co-branded card. No chargebacks though. <laughs> so what did you do after co-branded cards? What's some of the other stuff that you, that you did on, on your way to classy uh, GoFundMe? Yeah. So I spent some time at PayPal Braintree. When I joined them, Braintree was still its own business unit. So I was doing uh, like true business unit strategy for the Braintree portfolio within the PayPal organization. So um, how do we think about the go-to-market strategy? How do we think about kind of the processing strategy of the largest e-commerce merchants that were using Braintree, that type of work? And then some like true business app stuff that doesn't really, uh, it's not really relevant here. But then when that was all broken up, actually, I worked for the PayPal seller risk organization generally. So a lot of agent queuing on seller risk for all of PayPal's uh, seller commerce products. Uh, so then after that, I uh, was working as the head of product for Pagos, which is where we met, which is yep. a transaction record data analytics product. So how can we look at transaction records and understand what's happening and optimize the payment stack for e-commerce merchants? Yeah. And I think Pagos is, is a pretty cool, just like think of it like for people that aren't familiar with it, like definitely go check them out. But think of it like more like a BI tool if you don't have BI. Like a lot of us like Absolutely. use like Tableaus and things like that to build our own dashboards. Like you guys kind of aggregate that data for us and put it in like uh, the most commonly used and most commonly looked at uh, ways to look at that data. Yeah, exactly. Payment specific too. So now you're at Classy GoFundMe, which- um, now I'm at Classy GoFundMe as of two weeks ago. GoFundMe is a parent company of Classy. Yes. Tell me more about all of this. Yeah, so I think that GoFundMe is a pretty recognizable brand. You know, you think about that crowdfunding platform. Uh, their mission is to be the most helpful place in the world. So helping people raise money for each other in their community. Um, a year and a half ago, they acquired Classy. So Classy is a fundraising platform for the nonprofit space. So they do more than just kind of that fundraising stuff. But think about, you know, a white labeled payments page, helping a fundraiser um, have incentives. If, you know, you raise $100, you get a baseball cap or something. Or ticket sales, join a 5K, you're kind of fundraising oh. for that 5K event, that type of thing. Um, they do that whole suite. So GoFundMe acquired Classy, I think it was a year and a half ago, and really thinking about how they can activate the world of donors and very active community base of donors in GoFundMe, and then the causes that Classy supports. Do you guys do recurring at all, like recurring donations through that platform? 
Yes. Yeah. So it's one time recurring and large major donations and ticket sales and oh, okay. also goods. If you want to buy merch or something. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. I, um, my best friend, he, his daughter, who's my goddaughter had a like jogathon and I use one of those sites to donate to the jogathon thing, but it's like one of those nonprofits exactly. where you have to donate to cover their, um, to their, uh, processing fees even type exactly thing. yes yeah. it's like it's like would you like to tip and then i would try to put zero and it's like error tip must be greater than zero <laughs> i was like i was like you guys <laughs> one cent no it's yeah. Let, let's not give away all my secrets now yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about what you do there and then let's talk about kpis specifically because i think for the most part people know what kpis are um, key performance mm-hmm. indicators and they vary business to business so let's talk about what you do specifically at Classy and what that the world of KPIs means to you and what it, what you do with your day around KPIs. And then I'll talk about my KPIs. Yeah, that sounds great. So um, my role is actually chief of staff to the president of Classy and COO of GoFundMe. So um, my definition of KPIs, I just want to broaden and think about KPIs as a discipline beyond just payments, because I think that can be helpful for us, right? Businesses use internal KPIs and to help measure operations, just as much as we use KPIs to measure payments performance. And what's really important when we think about KPIs is that they are tied, one, to whatever your objective is. So in the payments world, you know, authorization rates, low chargebacks, whatever. But two, are actionable. So you, whenever a KPI falls out of bounds, you want it to be specific enough that it tell, leads you in some type of direction, right? This is where I go from here. This is the type of business decision that I can make uh, after after I can address this, to, to address this issue. So I think that's a really important foundation when we think about KPIs, because there's a lot of data that we can look at that's really helpful, can help us explore incidents, can help us explore uh, how our business operates, but would never qualify as a KPI because it doesn't help us drive business decision. So a big part of my world at Classy and GoFundMe is helping us understand, um, set up KPIs that relate to you know, mission and vision of the organization that our leaders can buy into and be held accountable to if they change. Um, some of those are business and operation specific, but then of course, because it's a fundraising platform, those are also payment yeah. specific as well. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I think, you know, that's super interesting because you're in a position where you have like business indicators. Like I'm, I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast specifically, um, will just be used to their normal KPIs, you know, like, but totally like we have our chargeback rate, our authorization rate, you know, like um, approval rates, all of those sorts of things, like order review rates, that sort of stuff. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, if you look at like other parts of your business, you know, there's marketing um, KPIs that are like abandon rate, you know, like click through rate, you know, uh, ad, ad click throughs. And I think that you, you have like even call centers too, actually have like, um, you know, how long you're on a call, like the, uh, yep. the AHT, they call it average handle time, um, your survey, uh, what do they call the survey things? They call it MSATs um, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. 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 Something like that. But um, so every piece of the business has their own KPIs. And I think that you hit the nail on the head is like, okay, that's great that you can measure these things. And that that's, that's awesome. So you can visually see it. Like I, like while you were just talking there, I was bringing up my KPI dashboard at my company that we use. And we, we measure, there's about 20 different things on here. And we'll talk about those in just a little bit, but I think the real trick is, is what do you do when things fall out of, out of line? So what, what happens first? Like, 
when something falls out of line, what happens? Do, does somebody have to go find it? Is there an alert that's triggered? And I think usually the alert that's triggered is is the best way to go. Like whether that goes to like a Slack channel, a Google chat, um, mm-hmm. an email, some sort of, of notification that, hey, something's wrong here. And then you need to click in and, and try and do what you do to try and figure that out. Whether that be running SQL queries, looking at your queues, looking at chargeback data, looking at approval data, uh, getting granular on your approval data, which is like what things Apagos used to like help out with or still helps out with. But like, yep. Is there a specific bin that's throwing it off? Is there a specific network that's throwing it off? All those sorts of things. So I think people really like the KPIs are basically the foundation of measuring the success of how you're doing, you know, at the end of the day. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly true. And in an ideal state, you've taken some time, which can be, you know, a month with your executives or whoever leads the business, you know, they're trying to measure whoever leads your payment stack or your risk. Uh, risk management component of your business, aligning that they agree to these these measurements, right? Yep. And if you don't have that alignment, to be honest, no one will respond when things go out of bounds, right? So in risk, you mentioned like some of very, very standard ones, chargeback rate, um, net losses, average handle time, that's not payments, but people don't disagree with those. Those are kind of st- industry standard and you can put those in. But ideally, you've spent that time, rate, uh, you've spent that time gaining alignment and then it's integrated into a business flow where the those that are in charge of those metrics are reviewing them on a daily basis. Right? Yeah. So ideally, it's a dashboard. Ideally, it's yes. some type of report, like kind of old school as some analyst makes a PDF and sends it in an email every day. That works. You know, it's not super technologically sophisticated, but it works um, so that you can review those every single day. And ideally, the executive kind of knows, are they trending in one direction? Are we... A, are we approaching hot water before something becomes a crisis? And exactly what you talked about, it you know, it goes into a Slack channel, it goes to a red alert, it goes to a crisis management team, whatever. Ideally, you can make corrections before it gets to that point because you're aware of the metrics over time. One of the things that we do here at iHerb is we have like this, this like the it's 20, well, it's 22, I just counted. Uh, uh, we have 22 different metrics that we measure on my team. However, we also have an executive summary of our KPIs mm-hmm. that we pull out some of like the ones that they would really care about that like that's most prudent to their day to make sure that the business is you know succeeding and and, and fitting into the ways they are so like it's kind of like a, a lesser like a, a light version L I T E version of what we do because they don't need to go as granular as, as we go necessarily on on my team sure. so that's that's a good way to put it so at the end of the day the we're always trying to measure the successes and the failures at, right. of what our business is doing and what our team is doing and, and our performance. So to you, like, how would you measure success? Really, when we're thinking about, you know, that e-commerce and payments flow, success is that the customer is able to make a purchase and the customer was non-fraudulent, right? We're trying to measure, can the business make and then keep the revenue that they made? And that's that's really all success means when we're thinking about e-commerce revenue. All KPIs boil down, if you really think about it, to one single solution did it work or did it not was it right, right. or was it not you know right. like that's really what like you can measure every single piece of it but at the end of the day was the decision that was made from all of that data the right decision or not did it work right <laughs> so right and know. ultimately in the space of for-profit companies like is the top line growing at a at a rate faster than your kind of cost center yes or no and, yeah, and transactions I, are a really good lifeblood indication of that. Yeah, especially like, I mean, if, as long as you're in uh, that sort of e-commerce business, which or, or commerce business, you know, but 
I mean, I think like when people right now, especially in this world, in this, this um, capitalistic world, like growth is how you measure that success, just growth right. the end of the day. And if your business is growing, you're succeeding. And that's usually what people look at. I think with, with the way that coming out of the pandemic and the way that prices have gone, um, margin has been thought of a lot more, it seems like than, than historically, like I think people, people always thought about margin, always measured margin, I'm sure. But it seems like people um, are hyper-focused on margin more than ever. And that's why you see like inflation being the way that it is, because like these companies, they stopped growing in the pandemic. So in order to have to show something, they had to increase the profit lines. And that's why my sandwich and firehouse subs just cost $25 when it used to cost like nine. Um, But, you know, firehouse is probably going to have gangbusters numbers on that. But at the same time, you see, you see like the, the, the staffing numbers like dwindling at these businesses as people like, like as, as they start offering more, like in the twenties, $25 range for, for entry-level employees to come in and do these things, instead of having two doing it, you know, for $9 an hour, they're having one person do it for 21, 25, which has all these people frustrated with that are working there, which is leading to the poor quality of work and poor craftsmanship on the, on the products that come out of it. Like my sandwich is not well put together, but at the same time, I'm sure that this person was just slam bammed on there while firehouse totally. is trying to squeeze every, every dollar out of them if possible while still dealing with people not having $25 to buy every sandwich, you know? Yeah. Sense? Growth, growth at all costs has been not growth at all costs has been kind of disproven recently. It's why not a fad. It's not really showing to have the types of returns that, you know, that we're looking for. I'm so happy that you said that because I was thinking the other day, like I run a business with this podcast and yeah. Obviously, I would like it to grow. Okay. Obviously, I want more listeners. I would like sponsors to keep coming around. However, if everything stayed status quo the way that it is today with the podcast, I would be happy for a very long time. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't need it to just be in this perpetual. Like, I have listeners. I have a lot of listeners that I think are core to what I talk about. And I have generous sponsors that make sure that this content is able to be released and done well, produced well, uh, have merch, you know, pay for the, there's, there's, there's costs that come with running the, there's infrastructure that comes with running this podcast, but like, I'm happy. I don't need to just be trying to squeeze extra dollars out of sponsors or trying to find another way to monetize it. I just don't. And like that, you're right, that growth at all costs, like what happens, like these businesses that are making billions of dollars of profit, excellent. You're you're covering all of your business expenses. Everybody has what they need to do their job, hopefully, at that company. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you need more? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, you just don't always need more. Like sometimes just run the business and keep it running. And I think it, for me, I think about like these products that people put out, like that are like, they they start with their whole angle of making a really, really, really good product. It's handmade. It's built to quality. So we all adopt it and we all jump on of how great the quality is because of how well it's engineered. And then immediately their growth at all costs, profit at all costs, they start to cut corners on the individual pieces of, of this thing. It's like, oh, people might not notice, you know, if we if we eliminate like there's there's like a there's three trusses in something. So maybe we take out one of those. Now there's only two, but people don't really notice. But like the whole reason that we flocked to it was because it was over-engineered to begin with and it's going to last us a long time. 
like I think barbecue companies are, are a pretty good example of that. Like the smokers, like Traeger, you know, like they were a, a sure. great company, handmade. And then they sold to a company that was manufacturing them in China a lot quicker, um, getting the cost down, using thinner materials. And then the, the, all of a sudden people don't like it anymore because what they originally went to is just not what the product is anymore. And this growth at all costs is then cost of the business. But to the company that purchased them, let's low, let's raise the prices a little more, you know, like those sorts of things. I, I don't know. I'm just went on a thing there. I don't know. Right. No, no, it's fair. Cause also I think that our industry has really been hurting from this mentality the past couple of years, right? So the growth at all, at all costs doesn't necessitate profitability at all costs, right? It's all focused on top line growth. And we had these companies with extremely fast revenue growth and equally fast cost growth, right? And then when the pandemic happened and um, recession started happening, and that slowdown was contracting their top line. They couldn't maintain their cost structure because it wasn't appropriate for their business to begin with. And then, then so we had all these layoffs in the tech industry, right? Yeah. Um, I'm oversimplifying it. There's more involved. Like, yeah, but I mean, else, it, but yeah, it absolutely makes sense on everything though. You know, like if you boil it down, it's like, that's what we're trying to kind of do is boil these KPIs down, you know, to figure out right. like where, where the things are. And then it's totally right. You know, and I think like, you know, shareholders, it, it, I mean, like everybody's the same thing is like they had experienced this growth when the market was strong and then right. it contracted and then it started growing again. And they're like, what it seems like they're trying to make up for that lost time by just right. like super overcorrecting it. But then, you know, they have these, these quarters, these, these record quarters. And then all of a sudden, like, that's the new normal, like that's yeah. the new expectation. It, it can't be like, Oh my God, we had the quarter of our lives according to our normal baseline by our KPIs. That becomes the new high watermark that then they're like, okay, let's go over it. I, I see with like house flippers um, in my area, because mm -hmm. I've been trying to buy houses is sure. historically, like you flip a house, you make like 30, $40,000 profit. And then all of a sudden the interest rates went to zero almost. The prices started skyrocketing and they were buying up all these houses for cash, getting $200,000 profit a flip. Sure. And that became their new normal. So we see it in these neighborhoods here where people will buy these shit houses for like $800,000, put fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 into like a paint, you know, lipstick on a pig, this thing, and then list it for like 1.1 million. And it looks right. like trash. And they just have that. They, they can't go back. Like now that they've, they've tasted this, they can't go back. And I see the same thing with like all these other companies, the petroleum companies, we see it like all, like all these companies that had this taste Airline companies, like they just, they want more. And like, I don't want to be the person that's like, oh, greed, 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 like cry about greed being everything, but it's something, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't yeah. at all what we talk, decided to talk no, about. No, it's today. not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. So let's go back to KPIs because, you know, yep. everybody, we come out with these baseline numbers. Yeah. Um, so for me, let me talk to you about some of the KPIs that, that we do. And you can, sure. you can tell me what you think about those, because obviously it's my specific piece of the business. So one of the things that we always do, chargebacks, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, review rate, obviously, those are the easy ones, uh, and then approval rates. And I've been saying for years, like, you know, approval rates are something that people really need to monitor because if you're declining transactions with your fraud tool, now there's two approval rates. There's the approval rate gateway, so your payment processor approval rate, and then there's right. the approval rate from your fraud tool. Like, what is your rates of approval? And those are separate because obviously what's happening in your gateway is stuff that's happening, hopefully, you know, before, or maybe depending on how, where you have your fraud tool, you should have a higher approval rate on your fraud tool than you should on your gateway. Because your fraud tool should be approving more orders than 
your gateway at the end okay. of the day. Like if you're declining like five, 10% of your orders, then you either have a really high risk product or you're being a little tight on your rules. That, sure. That's, that's my opinion. Now my business is different. Like even though we do we deal in high risk territories, we don't have a lot of high risk products at my business. You know, I'm not selling stuff that's in short supply, like tickets. I'm not selling sneakers, PS fives, those sorts of things. So we sure. have um, a, cu a couple of measures. So one of the things that I'm really keen on is uh, the percent of orders that go to the review bucket. So mm -hmm. we track that pretty extensively. So we want to know of the orders that we are sending to manual review, which is we don't really have manual review in the classic sense because we use Riskified. So it is a binary yes, okay. no decision. However, um, in the nose on Riskified, they have two different levels. They have fraud and they have high risk. So for the sake of our business, because we a lot of our orders can look fraudulent when they're not, we send what they consider high risk to a manual review, which is like less than 1% of the orders, just to see if we can find anything in it. And mm -hmm. um, how we track that is what goes into that little bucket what is a percentage of orders that we are declining? And that tells me how dirty those orders are. Because if if we are, let, let's say we're declining only 5% of what goes in that bucket, that means 95% of that stuff is good. So why is it winding up in that bucket to begin with? Because it shouldn't be there. It's wasting time. It's wasting order time. So I like to see the, that, that particular percentage high. Like I prefer it to be 30% to 50%, even above 50% if I could, because that means the orders that are going to manual review that we're spending dollars on having human beings look at are really bad orders that need to be looked at and should be looked at. And the same thing right. you can kind of go the other way is if, if you're declining everything in that bucket, then why are these orders, why are you even spending time, wasting time to even have somebody look at it, just decline them and move on. So there is a balance. Right. So that's why you kind of need to be in that target 50 to 60 range on that because that's, that's where you, the, the people really are spending the time. Now, Next part you said was false positives. So we yes. do monitor false positives because we don't want to be wrong and we don't want to cause friction. Our business has competition, customer experience. Right. So we do monitor false positives and we specifically monitor false positives on contacts. Now that mm -hmm. is a really harsh way because you do miss false positives and we are aware of that, but you don't really know if something's a false positive, absolutely, unless someone tells you. So we look at obviously customer contacts through the call centers, through the, the emails, through chats, we also look at app reviews and any sort of negative feedback on any third-party sites and count those as well. So all of that comes into our, our false positive rate. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I just wanted to expand on that. That all makes a lot of sense. Um, and based off what I know from your business, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I do want to add some more color in what these metrics could look like. So sure, please do. When I was I'm, I'm here to learn. In... <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't so much on the B2C side, but when I was uh, working for PayPal Seller Risk, right? So there was... A, a rule-based and an ML model that would queue up sellers that might be engaged in fraudulent activity. So think of like AML, shell companies, that type of thing, right? And it would go to an agent review. And the way that they would measure those, those metrics is it would take the number of reviews that that agent reviewed, right? It would take the number that they actually stopped, said, yes, this is legitimate fraud. And then to take the number that they passed, said, no, this shouldn't have been sent to me. It's not legitimate fraud. And of the ones that they said, this is fine, cleared, they saw how many of those sellers actually ended up with losses associated with their accounts. So like an incorrect decision, right? And the so reason I bring say, that up- When you say losses associated with their accounts, so you so they approved yeah. the seller, right? Yeah. And they said, they said, yeah, the seller's legitimate. And then yep. the seller had a loss, like what, they got charged back? They sold bad products? Because how would that be a measure of, of seller risk if 
and they're just they could just be selling shit product too at the same time you know yeah so think about so one of the kind of metrics would be your intent to actually sell products right so mm -hmm. if you set up a company and you have no intention of actually selling a product you're just taking people's money and running with it right so yeah uh, maybe this that reviewed. We we see that a lot, like in, in marketplaces, people set up fake marketplaces, sell fake products using stolen credentials and then cash out themselves. That's exactly why I brought it up for the marketplace context. Cause PayPal, obviously in the B2B, maybe not so relevant, but this is relevant in, the, in a marketplace scenario. I guess the wallet's kind of marketplace-esque anyway. Um, yeah. So think about this. So, uh, you know, a merchant or seller sets up their seller account. They start accepting payments. Something is flagged. They're reviewed by an agent. The agent says, no, it's fine. They keep making transactions, right? Then we get all these communications, chargebacks, or or direct reach outs from customers, because if it's the wallet, then they can oh. contact PayPal directly and say, hey, this was never delivered, right? Okay. So then an agent goes in and says, where are the shipping labels? Where are the confirmation of receipts? All of these things, and might find out that that customer or that seller had no product ever and was not sending yeah. their product to anyone. Okay, so that makes sense. And then PayPal yeah. pays out those chargebacks. PayPal pays out the refunds, right? And that would be written as a loss. Yeah, sure. PayPal taking a loss. Yeah, right. Um, so, but that makes sense to me where, yeah, so extreme negative behavior on a seller that's been touched by an agent would indicate they were, the agent might have been wrong on their decision. Correct. Correct. Right. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, PayPal people at the end of the day, um, not PayPal employees, but like PayPal, people that use PayPal abuse PayPal. That's just the nature of the totally. I mean, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No comment on the, on the PayPal yeah. ecosystem and quality of their Hey, that's not all me. But... Nothing coming from your side. That's all on my <laughs> side. And PayPal already knows my feelings about them. Yeah. Yes. But it, it's interesting. The reason I bring it up is because one, it's a take of how you could calculate it if you do have manual intervention part of the company. And two, it does take a, a more marketplace perspective than in your B2C perspective. And what matters most is that you're segmenting the data on a way that means the most for your business. So I think about the transaction or the data you get from a risk tool or whatever, the gateway. Think about all of the attributes as your playground to think about data populations and data segments that mean the most to your so, business and mean the most to your outcomes as an individual, as a business leader. So a lot of times, like when I, where my mind's going with that automatically is like, you know, segmenting, like, let's say, like for my, my business, I have a US mid and then I have a European mid and then I have a, right. soon to be a, a Japanese bin. So segmenting it right there in, in those three places would be would be first, the first thing that I would do, you know, because I want to see authorization rates by region, you know, but right. is that is that what you're kind of talking about there? Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about thinking about what are the types of parts of your business that drive outcomes in your PL, because that's what can be measured by the, you know, the financial organization of your business. Thinking about the fact that your KPIs are generally tied to leaders. So who makes decisions in your business and what decisions matter to them when they're thinking about the health of their business unit, their organization, they're part of the transaction lifecycle and making sure that your KPIs are segmented in a way that aligns to their objectives. Um, because that's going to really be aligning your me measurement, your metrics to how uh, decisions are made and how decisions are moved through your business. Yeah. And that's why, and that comes back to making sure that the business is making good decisions based on data. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. And I think like, you know, a lot of the things like even just to, to, to put context around that, you know, like back to my example of like by regions, like a lot of like our business had never really looked at like those regions broke down that much before. Mm -hmm. And then when we finally did segment out those sorts of things and see what like the approval rates were, but also the cost of payments in those regions by the different right. types, 
would allowed us to make the, these longer term decisions that we need to segment this traffic to this processor, this one to this processor. We need to open a, a, a bank account here. We need to set up an entity here in order to mitigate because before, you know, they just got a bill and they just paid the right. bill, you know, and nobody really looked at it and it was fine because the business was performing well. But now that the, we, there's more of us here that can look at these the granularity for these sorts of things, um, cost of payments, you know, I think is, is its own set of KPIs that yep. like is allowing us to make more informed decisions. Some of the decisions too, you know, are, are all, it, it's, it's beyond just cost savings. It's, it's performance based on like, are, do we have the right partner in this region? Do we right. have the, like a lot of people use grab pay. Do we have grab pay? Or a lot of people use uh, picks. Do we have picks? You know, making sure that we have what we should have instead of just being like, well, you know, we made $4 million down there last week. You know, it must be good, right? You know, it's like, mm -hmm. well, it could have been eight, you know, if we would have had the right thing. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, obviously with, with payments fraud, um, chargeback rate is like the, the, the jumping off point, I think, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where everything starts before they jump into all these other KPIs that we're doing. And we could probably talk about a couple more, um, at the end here, but, uh, talk to me about what you think about chargeback rate. Yeah. Chargeback rate is an interesting one because it's often used as a headline for fraud, but it of course is not just fraud, right? Um, individuals can have legitimate chargebacks because Grievances. Mm -hmm. they're, yeah, because they're upset with the quality of the service that they received. Right. And maybe they, you know, went for refund and it was denied X, Y, Z reason. They're upset with the business. They charge back. Like that was never going to be considered a loss for, for the company. So it's important to distinguish if your chargebacks are coming from fraudulent behavior or non-fraudulent behavior. And this is a really weird rule of thumb that I learned from kind of a fraud expert. And I have no idea where it came from, but I have found it to be true. So just do your own investigating and decide for yourself. But it's that on average, Fraudulent chargebacks, the AOV of fraudulent chargebacks is about two times the standard AOV of your business. So you think about that, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but it makes sense because if you're going for a chargeback scheme, right, you're trying to move money quickly, you're probably yeah. going to have a larger basket size than just the standard person who is making purchases from your company. Um, so so that would drive up you know, the, AOV, the AOV of those chargebacks. We, start, we made a chart that was AOV of chargebacks compared to standard AOV. And when we saw a spike in the AOV of chargebacks approaching one and a half to two X standard AOV, it was almost always able to be detected back to a fraud scheme at the bin level. Super interesting. Super interesting. I'm fascinated right now. And I'm thinking about it. So there was a, a long time ago, we were putting together a presentation for some, some of the clients at, at Ticketmaster. And we had like, we we're pulling just some numbers and it was like the, if any time a transaction is $500 or more, the mm -hmm. likelihood of it, of it resulting in fraud is 70% higher than a normal transaction. I'll have to find, this is an old number. I think it's like 2018, 2019 numbers. That's kind of consistent psychology though. That's super fascinating about that. And it's got the wheels really turning in my head. And I think anybody that's listening to this, you should go back and look at your chargeback dollars for fraudulent specifically and see your AOV or ATV, depending on whatever you call it internally and see if that, yeah. if that really stands true and then maybe do something around that and see, see if there's some sort of alerting or something that you could do, but there's more. Let's talk about moving beyond just like the chargeback rates, the, the uh, approval rates, as far as like just hard, what is my authorization rate? What is my approval rate? 
just like the, the big three. Let's move beyond those. And, and what do you got for some KPIs that, that, that you found interesting there? Yeah. So I'm going to be honest, I don't have specific rates that are different and I'm not, I'm going to hesitate to say this is kind of a good rule. You're not going to give us any more 2X. 2X. Chargeback <laughs> one. That one's good. Um, but really what, what I think, this is what I think you should think about. Like the transaction life cycle is standard, right? You start with verifications or some type of fraud rule. You have the off the gateway off event, the off event itself goes to the networks, goes to issuers and it comes back, right? Then there's the post-settlement off and refunds or not off and refunds. Then there's the post-settlement chargeback. Well, actually, technically you were right because they do require us to authorize refunds now. So technically well, that's right. true. That's so <laughs> ugly. I yeah, no, it, it it blew up like everybody's everybody's merchant account a couple of years ago. That was such a boneheaded thing. Like, come on. Yeah. <sighs> it's just because they don't want to route like when we push like funds back to like canceled cards anymore that used to be on them. And now they can just like wash their hands of it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so what I would say is when you think about that life cycle, don't try to reinvent the wheel. What you should be doing is taking the measurements of success at every stage in that life cycle and customizing it to your business in a way that is actionable for your business. So a really good one to think about is actually declines, uh, decline code analysis and grouping your decline codes in ways that are meaningful for you to take action. So we always think about hard and soft declines, right? Like what could be prevented or overturned in the future and what can't be, but you can also get a level deep, deeper, right? What are the three decline codes that mean they're a technical decline and you're sending the wrong information from your business, right? Like measure those as a, its own cohort, because if that goes out of bounds or if that spikes up, then you actually have a business outcome to take. If you're only measuring declines at the top level, yeah. what's going to happen is your declines are going to go out of bounds and then you're going to spend three days researching why. And you're going to be running around to engineers and you're going to be talking to your processors and you're going to have wasted three days of lost revenue because you haven't solved the problem. Get your KPIs measuring that specificity before, before you even get that position. And that's really, really important. Like we're doing an exercise right now around decline reason, just because like we, we see higher than the normal on, on a certain type. Um, and we've been seeing it for a few months. We've just had some wackiness as we've been like really cleaning up our payment stack. And uh, it's led to not only us like having a better understanding of some of the shortcomings and where we we could be better, but also finding some technical limitations in some of the partners that we've worked with sure. where they were not performing to the desired level um, for us. And it's led to healthy dialogues. But I think, you know, like everybody always looks at like NSF declines. And I think even on the panel that we were talking of, like that we were on with Sam, you know, like there's things that can be done because we, there's pain processors that are lumping more than just regular NSF into the NSF thing. And that's why where your soft declines come in, you know, you can take a soft decline for NSF and maybe try it over a debit network and see if there might be a different outcome or try it over a different processor and see if there might be a right. different outcome there, you know, but I think that that's really important. Like the technical piece and breaking out, like the, the ones that are like a, like a do not honor or an NSF, you know, breaking those out separately from, from the technical ones could really drive the needle. And I think, you know, we're all looking at, how we can incrementally approve our authorization rates. You know, that's everything, you know, that's absolutely everything to our business is we want to have successful payments quickly, easily without any sort of problem. And if we're not, it's, it's detrimental to our business. So finding a way to move the needle, even 1% on that is massive for your business, more than your chargebacks. So hopefully, hopefully. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But you touched on something that's really important that we actually haven't discussed at all this point, which is using KPIs as vendor management. Um, in payments, you inherently have at least one vendor, your processor, but you probably have more. 
Yeah. Um, and if you're in a global scenario or in a large company scenario, you probably have a multi-processor scenario. You should absolutely be segmenting all these metrics based off of vendor performance. I think sometimes when we think about success and payments, um, of course, auth rate is it, but we think about the checkout product itself. And of course, you need to measure the, the checkout product, right? Your customers want a seamless experience. They want to make that transaction easily with the payment method that's most appropriate for them, whatever. All yeah. that is true. But it's not the only thing that drives uh, revenue and transactions for your business. And so I would encourage you to think about the other teams that influence transaction volume within your company. So that could like marketing. be promotional, <laughs> marketing, yeah, customer acquisition, uh, whatever that looks like for your business. And think about how your payments KPIs relate to their businesses and how you can connect them together so that your incentives are aligned. Because um, if you're measuring performance of the business by KPIs and you can share KPI burden with them, they will be more likely to collaborate with you because your outcomes are, are your objectives are aligned between the two teams. Okay. Well, as we wrap up, I think there's a lot of useful information in here that has got me thinking a lot. You know, I have my KPIs that I that I love. I live and breathe. I use them every day. But this has given me a lot to think about as far as like not only moving beyond just the KPI, but moving to alerts, moving to triggers on some additional data points, like especially that 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 AOV thing. That's been super fascinating to me. Um, but like I do, I, I've been leaning a lot more into measuring vendor performance with that as well. So excellent points. Thank you for bringing those up. Uh, let's wrap up with our, my usual, which is the top three things that are happening in your world. So now you're you're less so on payments measuring as a full day. You have multiple things that you have to do now. So yes. what are the big th three things that are happening in your world? Yeah. So uh, at this point, I've only been in this new world for a couple of weeks. Nonprofit sector is not something I was working in before, um, philanthropy and giving. So I'm going to give you two. Okay. But one, I think is actually very universal to the e-commerce or just general retail space. And that is nonprofits and causes are gear gearing up for giving season. So Giving Tuesday um, and all of the holidays drive a lot of volume to nonprofits. And I think that it can be up to a third percent of their overall donations come from this quarter. Wow. And that's not necessarily, I know it's a huge percentage, um, but also not dissimilar to e-commerce. They don't hit a third maybe, but of course you see a huge spike of transactions and revenue from Black Friday and from Christmas and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So they're also gearing up, making sure that their systems are working, all the safety checks, everything's ready to go, no system uptime, that type of thing. The other thing that is really big in this space is the mobilization of data to understand what type of supporter someone would be for a cause, whether that is like an, a more of an activist role or a donation role or a fundraiser on behalf. And that also is really similar to uh, you know, the retail e-commerce payment mm -hmm. space, actually, because we're trying to think about what is the psychology of a customer in the scenario a supporter for nonprofit, but it could just be a customer making a retail purchase. What's the psychology of them that motivates them to put their money on the line, right? Yeah. And how can we use data to predict types of behaviors of the customer base? That's super interesting. When you start to dial more into that sort of thing, if you guys start to really like key in on like the psychology of a donor, could you like ping me again and let's do yeah. another one and talk about that? Because that's super fascinating. You know, we talk about this like behavioral biometric stuff all the time, which is like the cutting edge of what we do. But I think in your space specifically, you know, I know how I'm motivated to give and when I'm motivated to give, and it's a completely different headspace than like making a, just a regular like e-commerce retail purchase. So if you 
really, if you guys start to get some, some pretty solid data around that, I would be really interested to have another conversation about that. Yeah. I'll let you know. I think it's a really fascinating space too, because it's like a, a secondary level of discretionary spending, right? We all have our discretionary spending that's yeah. impulse driven and retailers are great at capturing that, but philanthropy giving is a, is different. It's a different type of discretionary yeah. spend. It seems like if I, when I go through like it just in my head, you know, like, and I don't mean it to be in like any negative way, but it's like the last place that I would spend the money because there's like my absolute sure. needs, you know, like sure. the, the ones that I need to sustain life. And then there's like, you know, the wants, which I think we're all selfish to an extent. Like we can always we can always act like we're not. But then you know the the giving away is is the last when you have that discretionary income to do that sort of thing. Sure. You know, and I think one of the things you know that that always like trips me out is like you see people giving these huge amounts. I think people need to keep in mind that like the amounts don't have to be huge. They could be ten dollars. They can be exactly. fifty dollars. You know. Yeah, and that's one of the fundamental premises of GoFundMe, right? crowdsourcing small amounts can make huge differences in people's lives. Absolutely. That's an excellent way to put that. Well, we're going to end on that one. I'm going to let you get away with okay. it too, because we threw some bonus, uh, bonus flavor around that. But thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you so much for talking about KPIs. I'm going to put links to you um, and to GoFundMe Classy. Um, I'll probably put Classy on there first. I'll put GoFundMe second on there. Uh, cool. It links to you so people can message you if, if they have any questions or anything like that. Um, I wish you the best of luck at your, your new company as you get settled in and, and really enjoy. And let's keep in touch and come back for more. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to visit our incredible friends and sponsor Spec. Get your holiday team ready with full visibility into the customer journey all season long using their patented no-code orchestration platform and be ready for whatever comes your way with the ability to collect data, call third-party APIs, build logic and workflows, all with the ability to take action anywhere in the entire customer journey. Visit www.specprotected.com to schedule your demo and learn more. Thank you.